Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. Mechanical ventilation, particularly in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome, remains more art than science. With a range of three and four letter acronyms to choose from, it can be quite bewildering at times to get your head around. Ed Litton is an intensivist at the Fiona Stanley Hospital and a clinical researcher at the University of Western Australia. And he joins me to talk about one such mode, Airway Pressure Release Ventilation, or APRV. Ed, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me. Ed, maybe we could start with what APRV actually is. Can you describe what it is and how it works? Sure. So uh, APRV, Airway Pressure Release Ventilation, it's a mode of ventilation, um, uh, I guess one of the difficulties is it slightly means different things to different people, but effectively what it is is a pressure-based mode where you maintain high pressure for a long time, dropping down suddenly to usually zero uh, for a very short time before coming back up to that high pressure. And throughout the respiratory cycle, you have uh, you allow spontaneous ventilation. So... Um, you have sort of four components, the, the pressure high, the time high, the pressure low, and the time low. And if you imagine, it's sort of, some people describe it as extreme inverse ratio ventilation. It's a little bit more than that because you've got the spontaneous ventilation. And uh, what you're trying to do is um, maintain a high mean airway pressure um, with this very high pressure. But when you drop down to zero pressure to allow expiration, the, you maximize the pressure gradient to allow gas exchange to occur quickly, but you're not allowing flow to drop to zero. So you're catching people, catching them before flow drops to zero. So you're maintaining PEEP, but you've got that high pressure differential. So you max, maximize flow rate uh, and minimize the time at which uh, the pressure is low. So the mean airway pressure is high. So is it the increase in mean airway pressure that uh, accounts for its impact or are there other factors involved? Yeah, so I think there's a few factors involved. Um, so undoubtedly, um, I guess usually people are using APRV because their initial mode of ventilation, they're deeming uh, unsatisfactory probably because patients are remaining hypoxic. So this is a, this is certainly, you know, if you're thinking about inverse ratio and holding people, you know, at a high pressure for a long time in a very short expiratory phase, this, this is a mode of ventilation for patients with compliance problems. It's not a mode of ventilation, of course, for people with resistance problems. So um, if you're thinking about uh, what mode you're starting in and you're not happy, it's probably going to be like a, some people might call it a bi-level, BiPAP, that sort of where you've got a PEEP, 10, 12, 14, uh, like that, and you go to a pressure high for you know some period and drop down again, and the you know IE ratio is going to be something like 1.5 to 1 or 2 to 1, something like that. Um, and so there, your mean airway pressure you know, is going to be lower then you're high pressure, right? You've got a P, a P high, and it's going to be somewhere in between that, you know, somewhere around the mid-range, depends on your IE ratio. Um, but if you're flipping them to APRV, you're, you could have the same high P high, but because your time at a low pressure is much shorter, for the same 
plateau pressure, your mean airway pressure is much higher. So, um, and with a high mean airway pressure, long time constant alveoli open up, uh, you've got a greater surface area for gas exchange, so oxygenation improves. So um, undoubtedly, one of the benefits of it is opening up long time constant alveoli for a higher mean airway pressure, but it, it's not just, it's a higher mean airway pressure, it's a higher mean airway pressure for the same high pressure, plateau pressure. So you, you're, you're gaining without having to give on the high end is the idea. Um, and the other, um, so the other benefits of it, I think, are allowing spontaneous ventilation throughout the respiratory cycle. And that's really important um, because, as we know, when you're breathing spontaneously, you've got better VQ matching. And so that helps in terms of where the gas exchange is going, the VQ matching. So that also helps in that regard. Um, and then you know, because you've got this good differential in pressure on the release phase, um, you get CO2 release over a very short time. So in terms of control of hypercarbia, if that's a goal, um, then that can be improved too. So describe a typical patient that you personally would reach for APRV in and what sort of problems would you be trying to overcome and what benefits would you expect to see? Um, yeah, so a tip, um, two typical groups, I think, and they overlap is, um, I, they're both problems of compliance, but sometimes it's lung compliance and sometimes it's chest wall compliance. So the very obese patients who are, uh, you know, intubated with some uh, lung infiltrate, um, where probably it's not you know, a true AIDS, but because they're really big and you can't differentiate the lung compliance from the chest wall compliance, you've got a compliance problem and there's a degree of collapse as well. And you want to increase the mean airway pressure. Um, in those patients, APRV can be really useful. So they're really, you know, the, the obese patients with pneumonia, uh, where there's a substantial component of lung collapse, despite what you might consider, you know, reasonable PEEP on a on a bi-level BiPAP sort of traditional mode of somewhere 10, 12, 14, 15, that sort of range, then I'd be thinking of APRV. And the other group is, you know, the, the more classic ARDS. Um, when I was training at North Shore uh, in Sydney, uh, very often we would use the traditional, you know, assist control um, uh, mode of ventilation for ARDS based on the original armor trial. And we would, you know, r religiously uh, calculate the ideal body weight and use the PEEP table and go up uh, on that. Um, but uh, it's not tolerated well by patients in my experience. Um, and um, so, you know, I think as things have advanced, a lot of people have moved away from that and more typically would start on a pressure mode uh, and use a pressure mode of delivery. But so if someone was on a PEEP of 12, a P high of 30, a time high of 1.5, a rest rate of somewhere around 14 um, with severe bilateral infiltrates and those uh, parameters were only giving them tidal volumes around 300, um, and the CO2 was high, that's okay, but the PO2 were unacceptably low, I don't know, in PO2s in the high 40s. 
uh, on an FiO2 0.8, 0.9. Um, I would definitely, in that group of patients where it's a compliance problem, it's bilateral infiltrates, it's hypoxia and hypercarbia, uh, and on what I would consider, you know, reasonably high levels of support with a pressure mode, they were still not meeting satisfactory um, targets. Uh, that's where I would consider APRV. Ed, what's the evidence base? It's a novel form of ventilation, to be fair. Um, where are we with our understanding of the potential clinical impact of APRV? Um, so, yeah, so it's been around for a little while. Habashi um, uh, is by far and away the most published author, sort of brought this to our sort of clinical consciousness. Um, where are we with our sort of understanding? Well, there's a number of observational studies um, that I guess you could describe as demonstrating that APRV um, is associated with improvements in PF ratio over time. And of course, you could argue that that would probably occur with any mode that was delivered. Um, but uh, I guess you could say that the observational studies would also suggest that in a comparably sick group of patients with ARDS, um, outcomes are equivalent to other modality, rescue modalities that have been employed, whether you're talking about proning, whether you're talking about ECMO, um, you know, mortality outcomes are similar. Uh, and I think compared to other modes of ventilation, you could also say that the safety outcomes are, have observed to be similar in terms of risk of barotrauma, which is something that's often brought up. So I think from the observational side, uh, and bearing in mind this comes predominantly from centres that are invested and experienced with its use, and they're mostly single centre studies, you could say that in experienced centres using it, they've published studies that suggest that their outcomes are at least equivalent to other rescue modes for patients with severe hypoxic respiratory failure from ARDS. I think that's what the observational studies say. Um, and the systematic reviews of which I've been part of one, you know, suggest possibly compared to traditional, you know, we talked about the armor style, uh, ARDS ventilation, um, mortality outcomes could be better, but the quality of the evidence is low. And that's because there's only been a few RCTs uh, and they're invariably reasonably small uh, and almost exclusively single center studies. Uh, and um, there was a pediatric RCT that was stopped early for possible harm. Um, uh, but two more recent adult studies that suggested benefit in ventilator free days, um, whatever you make of that outcome. So I think overall, the jury's definitely still out in terms of uh, its relative risks and benefits compared to both other modalities and to other rescue therapies. And um, to me, it's a super hard problem to untease, you know, all of this because there's so many, you know, the ventilation stuff is so hard, so hard for so many reasons. It's hard because uh, I think the ventilator is like, the extension of the intensivist's arms, you know, they really, like, we really feel strongly about, you know, it's, it's, it's a, something we deliver as intensivists. And so I think everyone has a strong personal view on how it should be done. So there's a lot of individual and cultural overlays uh, in terms of 
delivering it. So when you try and put that into a study, it becomes very hard because people come in with really strong preconceived notions. And it's not like just administering a drug where you can still influence what happens, but it's, it's much less a behavioral thing. Whereas with ventilation, it's so behavioral. You know, it's, it's like, how much do you want to make this work? <laughs> and people come in with such strong views about it. I think that makes it hard. I think the other thing that makes it really hard is that ventilation, and it's not exclusive to APRV, it's, it's all ventilation. It's a team sport, right? Like ICU is a team sport, but then delivering ventilation in sick people is really a team sport. And so you've got to, if you're delivering something like APRV, which requires a like substantial knowledge of how to initiate it and then how to titrate it in a dynamic fashion, um, then uh, you need the buy-in, not just of yourself as a keen clinician, but all your colleagues, all the junior staff, the nurses at the bedside, the respiratory techs, everyone, and not just for your one shift where you're there checking it every five minutes, what's going to happen when you go home? So, so I think it's a really tricky problem to unravel and probably part of the reason why it kind of, you know, there's really strong views Ed, you mentioned that there are some tips and tricks uh, for getting it up and running. Um, can you just, for those who are unfamiliar with the mode of ventilation, yeah. what are some of the things that people need to be aware of when they're starting somebody on, on APRV? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say, kind of leading on from that, I don't think it's a good idea to just give it a go if you don't know what you're doing and you haven't, you know, you're not prepared for it. And as I said, in in your unit, if there's not buy-in, it's it's probably going to go wrong. So it it is be- certainly best implemented um, after unit-level education and buy-in. Um, but in terms of um, patient selection, I guess we've t- spoken about that a little bit. You know, like uh, I would select predominantly those patients with ARDS in whom... Um, you you're not satisfied or the trajectory is um, towards deterioration despite you know your standard delivery of first line ventilation um, and if we think about like a bipap bilevel pressure style mode that they're in initially then let's say the pressure the p high in that that you're delivering is 30 well and you know you can start the APRV with a P high of 30. You don't even need to go above that. Um, and um, the time low is because, because the patients you're initiating it on really have very poor compliance. They've got these really stiff lungs that collapse down quickly. Um, your time low only needs to be very short, usually only around 0.3 to 0.6 seconds. Um, so it's a very short t- um, time and you titrate it based on the expiratory flow curve. So you're looking at the flow curve and you're aiming to drop that time low until you're catching them at the point where the expiratory flow is about 70% of maximal. So the maximal flow occurs just as they start expiration, but it drops down rapidly and you capture them, capture them where it's still 75%. Uh, and there's um, quite eloquent uh, microscopy studies looking at how that, if you capture them around 75%, not much lower than that, you keep the alveoli open. 
So that allows that auto peed so that they're not collapsing down each time. Um, so you set the P high there, the P low is at zero, the time low um, is about 0.3 seconds. And then it depends on your ventilator. Some will allow you to set the respiratory rate based on those. Some you've got to set the time high and you can see what the respiratory rate is based on that. Um, what I'd say then is that um, a critical part, and we spoke about it at the start, is the spontaneous ventilation. Um, so in general, it's actually tolerated well by patients and allowing that um, spontaneous ventilation is an important component of it. So often people are coming from a point of quite deep sedation um, because that's sort of typically what happens as people are getting sicker and fiddling with the ventilator, but you want to get them off their neuromuscular blockers if they've been on them. And then once the effect of those have worn off, you want to lighten the sedation to allow spontaneous ventilation on, on top of that. Um, and in my experience, that higher mean airway pressure will take some time to manifest in terms of improved oxygenation. Uh, sometime being, I don't know, six to 12 hours. But in that time, what you want to be doing is seeing if you can drop the P high, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's excessive. You don't need that. The, you know, you're able to drop the FiO2 so the, the P high can come down. And if you sort of believe that, you know, the association between compliance or pressure required, maximal pressure required in ventilation and outcome is actually causative rather than just um, associative, then that may be important. And I guess, you know, an overall principle of delivering only as much as you need, whether it's pressure, volume or anything else is a good one. Um, so you will, in the early phase, as they start breathing spontaneously, as you initiate that mode of ventilation, you need to be at the bedside and you need to be looking at the expiratory flow curves. You need to be titrating that to make sure you got the P low right. And then you need to, um, the T low right. And then you need to be titrating the P high, hopefully down a little bit. Um, so that's how I would suggest starting it up. And then you need to sort of, empower your nurses and make sure they understand your goal in terms of the sedation uh, and the spontaneous breathing on top of that. Ed, what are, the, what are some of the issues that patients might develop as part of um, APRV? You mentioned earlier barotrauma, for example. What are the possible complications of APRV? Yeah, so, I mean... Um, the published literature suggests that the barotrauma rate is equivalent to other modes. I, I find that a little bit hard to believe because we're delivering a higher mean airway pressure. Um, and I suspect they probably are a little bit higher because you're delivering a higher pressure. Um, so it would make sense to me that they're higher. And uh, I guess in my own anecdotal experience, I've seen a number of patients who transition onto APRV and then develop barotrauma, um, whatever that means. Um, so I think it's important to look out for barotrauma. That's really important. Uh, and as uh, I guess as we sort of, at least in our units, have transitioned away from routine time-scheduled x-rays, um, bearing that in mind with a patient on APRV is important. And probably if you've transitioned them to APRV, you probably want 
to schedule an x-ray, you know, reasonably soon after to check for that. And I, I would, I would avoid APIB in patients who have already some degree of barotrauma. I think that would be unwise. So I think the barotrauma is probably the main thing to look out for. Um, I think the next thing is the, the delay in seeing improvement sometimes discourages people. And then they, you know, you see the cycle flipping between modes and all over the place. So I would try and discourage that too and say, try and ride it out for a little while and just allow those effects. So, you know, it takes time to recruit those alveoli. And if that is your goal, then give that time. And I guess the last thing I would say is that quite commonly in, in my experience, the x-ray and the oxygenation look great on APRV. They look, I mean, they, it's suddenly like, wow, this like, and then you flip back to the old mode because they look so good and things fall apart again. So one of the nice things about APRV we didn't discuss is that you can wean them really nicely from APRV basically all the way to CPAP in a, just a slow, steady, incremental way. So you're starting, we talked about that high P high and short T low. Well, what you do is start bringing down the P high and stretching them, dip and stretch it's called. So fewer breaths per minute of the short release phases and a lower pressure. So, you know, you're starting at, I don't know, 12, 14 breaths a minute with a P high of 30, uh, but you're coming down 26, 24, 22, and the number of release phases is dropping, 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 and then you end up on 10 of CPAP. So you can wean them all the way to CPAP um, if that's what you want to do in APRV. And I think certainly at the start of the wean, it's a much better idea to do that in APRV than it is to suddenly flip back to your conventional pressure mode because you'll find with that drop of the mean airway pressure, all that time spent recruiting alveoli is lost. And I guess the other thing to say with that is, um, you know, making sure everyone at the bedside's aware about clamping the tube. You know, when you're, when you're having to take them off the ventilator to go for your CT, you also want to try and avoid that de-recruitment. So clamping the tube to keep the pressure um, so that they're not sort of exhaling. You know, that's the worst time. You're going to CT and you're just unclamping from the tube and then the sats are in the boots and then you're off to CT. It's a, um, it's, that can be messy. It, um, one of the criticisms of um, inverse ratio ventilation is the hemodynamic instability. Is that an issue with APRV as well? Well, um, again, in the literature, no, not at, not at all, in fact. In the literature, in the RCTs, um, it's not been an issue. Um, but... I, I, um, I, I, what I, I guess what I would say is that, you know, a lot of people with ARDS die because of right heart failure. Um, and um, if you've got a right heart that's struggling already because of hypoxic pulmonary constriction, because of hypercarbic pulmonary constriction, because of pre-existing RV dysfunction, uh, and then you add a higher mean airway pressure, um, that can make things worse. Um, so although they're published, I, I, I don't think being on a high dose of vasoactive because of vasoplegia is an issue at all. 
I don't think that is an issue at all. You want to adequate mean systemic filling pressure as you do with any mode of ventilation. If you're undervolumed, you're going to notice it because of a higher mean airway pressure. But I don't think uh, vasoplegia is a reason to be alarmed. And I would comfortably put someone on quad strength NORAD um, on APRV if I was confident that the issue was exclusively or almost exclusively vasoplegia. But with right heart failure, you can certainly um, make things a whole lot worse, a whole lot worse, because you're increasing the mean airway pressure. Uh, and that's going to make the right heart struggle if it's already struggling. So, and I've encountered patients where those Venn diagrams just don't overlap, like low enough pressure to allow the right heart to work versus high enough pressure to allow oxygenation. And it's like, they don't overlap. So, you know, ECMO or nothing, right? Um, so I, I think um, there's a bit of nuance to that, the answer. If you look at the literature, it'll say categorically it helps hemodynamics, but I think there's more to it than that. Ed, it's been a pleasure, as always, to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much for joining us and sharing your thoughts on APRV. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading the free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.